If we really want workplace policies that work for everybody, I will say though, it would, it would help if we had more women in Congress. It would help if we had more women in the corner suite. Thanks for joining Achieve Great Things. This is episode six. This week we're going to talk with Anna Greenberg, who's a, who's a partner at Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research. She's one of uh, the country's most well-respected pollsters, a really, really smart woman and um, someone who, who I have a lot of respect for. We have a really great conversation about the importance of listening as we think about communications, where sort of message research is going, the ongoing conversation we, we're having about whether we need to focus more or less on you know urban versus rural areas. And she's got a really, lot of really great insights. So we really hope you enjoy and we hope you're enjoying this podcast so far we're having a lot of fun as we get going we'd love more input recommendations on what we can do differently and better people you think we should feature and any other thoughts you might have so hit us up at podcast at hadaway.com you can follow hadaway on twitter at hadawaycom where we post new episodes and and other stuff and if you subscribe via itunes please uh, give us a review it's really helpful thanks again for tuning in and enjoy this interview with anna greenberg I'm here with Anna Greenberg. Anna has been um, working on a lot of different issues as a pollster and I think has a lot of great experience to share and we've known each other um, for a while and our neighbors also. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with the election because it's like it's hard to have any conversation about where we go from here without mm-hmm. starting there. Like I said, you've worked on research and communications across many issue areas. What did you learn from this election about the way we communicate? Well, I think we learned pretty clearly that um, Donald Trump had a pretty simple message and we had a multifaceted, complicated, inconsistent message uh, that was true at the presidential level, but I think trickled down to the campaigns below the presidential mm-hmm. level. And, you know, if you could if you could wave a magic wand, you'd go back and say, we all should have been saying the same thing in a very simple and clear way yeah. about, you know, the economy and about how we're going to make people's lives better and offer people a compelling, positive, forward-looking vision um, about the future that didn't sort of overstate the progress of the past, you know, recognize the struggles people still had. But ultimately, you know, our economic messaging and the campaign messaging was really a bit of a muddle. Mm -hmm. And I'd be surprised if, you know, many voters came out of the campaign really being able to articulate what what Democrats were going to do in office. Do you, um, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and you've been testing messages on Democratic candidates and issues for, for a long time. Does it feel different this time or do you think that like it's just caught up with us? I do think it's different, and for a couple reasons. I think as the country has become more and more polarized, mm-hmm. that there are fewer people to persuade, fewer people to communicate with. I mean, partisanship is the strongest predictor of how you vote, and so the 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 the, the, the number of people who are kind of per, you know low information persuadable voters is is quite small. So mm-hmm. when you're engaged in persuasive persuasive communication at the presidential level, you're not talking to very many people. The other problem is that people's information is totally siloed now. So you can have the greatest message in the world, but if they only read Breitbart and watch Fox News, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter what your message is because they've siloed their news consumption and that colors how they receive information. So I just think there's kind of the polarization and the hardening of lines on a whole range of issues that in the past weren't as partisan um, and plus the siloed nature of media consumption. Mm-hmm. I just think it makes it really difficult to 
effectively communicate, which then you know, reinforces the necessity of it being simple and clear and basic because it is so hard to break through in the current environment we're in. Did you see anything from this cycle, um, you know, candidates or issues or messages that you thought worked particularly well um, in a cycle where it seems like a lot of things didn't? I mean, it's really hard to say. I think if you look at the places where Democrats won tight races, so for example, if you take Senator Maggie Hassan, and full disclosure, my company did that race, mm-hmm. um, you know, she had a very consistent economic and positive message throughout the campaign. The outside groups um, did sort of the negative. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she was offering a positive and forward looking message about you know, largely an economic message um, with the full resources of a (laughs) competitive Senate race, um, very focused, I think was a a big reason about why she kind of won that one in a a squeaker. Um, So there are examples Mm -hmm. uh, of of races where Democrats did well, but it, it really does require a discipline that is difficult to achieve. And I'll just add, by the way, one of the challenges is mechanical. I mean, campaigns, many campaigns don't have control over their own message anymore. So if you are working in a congressional race, for example, um, and you are being funded in part by, say, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they also have influence over your message. And then Mm -hmm. you have all the outside groups coming in. So, um, you know, these big statewide races where you know, the Senate campaign itself is in charge of one lane of communication, you can be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of races, once I worked in, there was way more money spent outside of our campaign. And we what we were doing was a drop in the bucket. So the idea that, again, we could have had the best message in the world, there was nobody that was going to hear it because yeah. of everything else. And, and you know, I've said to, to congressional clients in particular, like, we're kind of not in charge of message strategy anymore. It's what the outside groups do because they just blow us out of the water on spending. Mm. It is helpful for different groups to Mm. kind of look at things in different ways and figure out what their lane is. Um, I actually think there's been too too much of a kind of homogeneity. So we have a lot of the same people doing message research for the committees Mm -hmm. and for the big campaigns Mm -hmm. and even nationally. And so you end up not having a diverse set of voices uh, involved in the front end of message development. So in some ways, there's almost too much coordination in in my view Mm. because there's not a very diverse set of voices doing message research when you get to national, mm-hmm. big statewide, there's about two or three pollsters who did almost all the message research for all of the committees and yeah. a lot of the big campaigns, and that limits, I think, your imagination yeah. uh, to, to some degree. So what do you tell clients who ask how, how you get to, um, or how we find more persuadable voters? I mean, is that even possible, or like, is it possible to look at voters in different ways? I mean, we've been talking about looking at motivational profiles or psychographics or things that kind of help you understand people maybe in a little bit more of a refined way than demographics do, but is that is that something that you guys... Well, I wouldn't at? even make it that complicated. Mm-hmm. I would say, let's listen to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that um, particularly when you get to campaigns that are not very well funded, there's no money for qualitative research, for focus groups, yeah. in-depth interviews, just listening to people. And it really makes a difference. I'll give you an example. If you looked at the national polls during the campaign, Hillary Clinton had 55% unfavorable and Trump had 55% unfavorable. And people said, oh, both candidates are, are, are hated. It'll there'll be a chunk of hold your nose vote, you know. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that... Um, those ratings weren't equal. If you got into a focus group, people were both negative about both candidates, but they were much more shut down to Clinton. So they would say, well, I just don't trust her. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, just can't see myself voting for her. And they would say about Trump, I really don't like his temperament or his language or the way he treats women. 
you know, but we do need a change. You know, he's mm. refreshing. So you get the same number in the poll, mm. but when you actually talk to people, it's actually qualitatively different. So I would start by trying to invest more money on actually listening to people at the front end instead of asking a public opinion survey conducted on the phone to kind of do all the message work mm-hmm. for you. The financial pressures are such that um, campaigns really don't want to do a lot of message yeah. research. They want to have the message, but they don't want to spend a lot of money on message research. So they ask a lot of like one survey to come up with the entire campaign strategy and message. So that's what I'm saying to clients now when they say, is polling broken? Is message testing broken? I said, well, actually, I think politics are kind of broken. Mm-hmm. And we need to take a step back and just kind of listen to people. Yeah, that seems to be a theme that's coming out of the election is listening to people, right? As we in getting beyond bubbles and whatever else you want to sort of wherever you put yourself within or outside of those bubbles. Um, we did some focus groups right after the election in Grand Rapids and a couple other places to try to understand a little bit more about Trump voters. And um, most of the people who voted for him never brought up his name in the focus group. It was They were mixed groups, people who voted for Stein, Clinton, and Trump. And his name didn't come up among the voters, which I think to, that's another interesting thing, like approval ratings or whatever, but people aren't um, 100% sold on them, even though they went to, to the polls and voted for him. So you can learn you can learn. I think that's true, to- but I also think that there are a lot of Trump voters who don't want to tell anybody they voted for Trump, not because they are ashamed, but because they know that they will be judged and attacked. And mm-hmm. so we actually mm-hmm. did some groups with just Trump voters, mm-hmm. non uh, Republican Trump voters and the relief was palpable in the room when everyone realized everybody had voted for Trump and they could mm-hmm. actually speak freely um, so again thinking about listening to people you know I think that um, you know a lot of the Trump voters kind of knew that their preferences were not you know were viewed as with ridicule or shame or uh, and, and pe- by people in their own family. Yeah. And so I think a lot of what they felt, they kind of kept it themselves, and that affected polling and affected message research also. Interesting. Um, so we do need to do more listening. Yes. <laughs> Across the board. Yes, and, and putting people in context where they feel comfortable mm-hmm. um, because it's hard. In a, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying about the group you did, but, you know, there was a relief that these Trump mm-hmm. voters felt that they were all with Trump people yeah. and they could just let it hang out and say what they really felt, thought. And they also, like, was almost like a group therapy session. Mm-hmm. I can't tell my family because, you know, my, my daughter won't talk to me or I wow. lose Facebook friends, right? So it's yeah. a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, and I mean, listening is the only way to really start to understand people's motivations and also where their decision points are and things like that. We can't learn, we can't learn everything from from one survey. Yes. So, um, so today's International Women's Day, and um, you have a lot of expertise on women's issues. What's your takeaway from from the election and where we are now as a country on gender mm-hmm. discussion about? about women in, in America? Yeah, I think that um, obviously gender dynamics were um, a huge part of this election. Um, there are lots of reasons why Hillary Clinton lost. Mm-hmm. I do think sexism played a role in that. Uh, it may not have been the definitive role, but there's lots of pieces of evidence that suggest that that was part of what happened, both um, among you know more conservative men, but frankly also among some Democratic men um, and some older Democratic women. Uh, so I think that that was a, and I think this election sort of surfaced in the way that Obama's election surfaced the latent racism mm-hmm. that still is so prevalent in our country. This election surfaced the latent sexism that is still so prevalent in this country. And so in that sense, it elevated so-called, you know, women's issues. And it and it did it not so much in terms of policy, mm-hmm. 
but more around how are women treated in the workplace, uh, which is a sort of different way yeah. to talk about these issues. Um, you know, Obama's women's agenda was really narrow. It was fun Planned Parenthood and Lily Ledbetter, equal pay. Mm-hmm. If you went to his website and went to the women's issues page mm-hmm. in 2012, those were the only two issues. Uh, and it's not that there wasn't a discussion of Planned Parenthood this cycle. There was, but it was much more about, and obviously a lot of it riffing off both Trump's treatment of women, but also how Hillary Clinton got treated as a woman candidate. Right. And then also the whole, um, how she got treated and how she talked about herself as a woman candidate. So it was kind of interesting that women's issues were not so much talked about in terms of policy, but in terms of place in society, mm-hmm. um, the, the legitimacy of women's leadership and, and, that, and that sort of thing. And I think that that continues. And I think that the Women's March and, you know, today is International Women's Day and a, a day without women. Yeah. Um, uh, that's actually for me. It was a day without school for my kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're at the office with me. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I think that's. I mean, as a Democrat and a progressive, I actually think that's a good thing, mm-hmm. right? There's a. I think it's important for these issues to be, you know, pretty close to the surface because there are so many issues around women's leadership and lack thereof in the corporate world and the political world, and I think it has a real impact on on policy. So. Um, you know, the, the thing is, Clinton actually did better with women than Obama did. Obama got 52% of women, and Clinton got 53% of women. Mm-hmm. Um, because people said, where are the women? There are mm-hmm. women who voted for Trump. Well, she actually did slightly better. And in fact, she won white college-educated women, uh, and Romney had won white college. Now she, you know, there was a decline with white non-college women, just mm-hmm. like there was with men. So there was a big class divide among women, not mm-hmm. just among men. People focused very much on, on white working-class men, but there was actually a class divide among women as well. And so... I do think that we are seeing an activation of feminists and progressive women, many of whom have never been active before, mm-hmm. as a result, as a reaction to the gender dynamics of this of this election. Does that lead to better policy? Not with this government we have in right, place, right. Uh, right? So I'm not yeah. suggesting there's a direct line, but I do think there's been a revitalization of yeah. feminism, of women's activism that is, I think, in the long run, enormously helpful for creating progressive outcomes. Yeah, and hopefully women candidates and 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 activists and you know yeah and i mean not all this is a gender story but it is interesting if you look at the senate pickups that three of them were democratic women Mm -hmm. uh so it's um or replacements anyway the point is there are three new democratic women in the senate there's a slew of people women running for governor uh this cycle uh in a slew of competitive states and i think that while there still are really big barriers to women candidates you see women winning and you see them winning these big competitive races and raising huge money, it begets more women Mm -hmm. doing that. So I I do think we're going to see more and more women running on the Democratic side. Good. I hope so. A lot of our clients have asked us, are we focusing too much on inner cities or urban areas, people who benefited more from progressive policy, and are we ignoring white people? What do you think about that? I just think it's a false choice, and it's a stupid internal fight in the progressive or Mm -hmm. democratic communities. Did we talk too much to racial minorities in cities and not enough to white rural people? It's sort of a false choice, and it goes back to how we started this conversation Mm -hmm. about messaging. You know, the core economic challenges that low-income whites face are very similar to the core economic challenges that single moms in cities face. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's no question that racism adds another layer of challenge, so there isn't complete sort of linked fate, if you will. But let's face it, whether it's transportation costs, healthcare costs, debt, you name it, there are shared economic uh, problems across um, groups that are less likely to have a college education. And I think we need to sort of have kind of a shared conversation as opposed to suggesting, well, we put too much focus on this and not on the other. 
The irony, of course, is that a lot of President Obama's policies, which were portrayed by Republicans as kind of welfare programs mm-hmm. for black people, mm-hmm. were actually very beneficial to white, lower, uh, and middle class folks around the country. And it's very interesting if you look at the new Republican ACA, you mm-hmm. know, plan. I guess it's not ACA, whatever they're going to call it. The people who get hurt the worst are 50 to 64 year olds, you know, who are kind of lower and Mm -hmm. middle income um, and heavily white bunch of folks. And so the irony is that the ACA was a middle class, broad based program that the Republicans talked about as a welfare benefit for black people and illegal immigrants. And so um, the Republicans, you know, are you know, this this narrative that we talk too much to minorities is not just of our own making. Right. <laughs> so again, I think you go back to first principles and say, what are the common values and common concerns of a group of people, regardless of their race or where they live? And you have a message around what kind of country we should be um, to all those people. I don't think that the Clinton campaign did that. And mm-hmm. I certainly don't think the down ballot races did that. And yeah. I don't honestly think that the Obama administration did that. I think that the Obama administration was much more focused on the economic progress that we'd made that people really weren't feeling. And it was deeply alienating, especially for folks who didn't have an ideological or or even racial affinity for Barack Obama. Yep. And that's a big part of what happened in this election. Well, that's, um, that's a great perspective. And I think um, that's going to be helpful for a lot of people as they try to think through this, because I think people are trying to make that choice of where do we focus our resources or our targeting or our message efforts. And yeah, just being about values, not about demographics is, is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is leave listeners with a specific idea or insight to help help people communicate more effectively. Um, you've you've talked about a lot of great um, ideas that people could take forward, but what's like what's the one specific thing you'd leave people with? Well, the one specific thing I would leave people with, which is a bit of a pet peeve, um, is avoid rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I feel like whether it's messages that are tested in focus groups and polls or messages that are used in campaigns are often more rhetorical than values-based or fact-based. And I think that people are so cynical about politics and believe and don't believe politicians can ever follow through on their promises and the things they say they're going to do, that the more measured, mm-hmm. um, non-rhetorical you can be about who you are and what you want to do, mm-hmm. um, I think you're much more likely to be heard. I'm not suggesting laundry lists of policies. Mm-hmm. I just mean, you know, and especially I think when it comes to messaging on Trump, um, you have to understand that there's a lot of people, he's not lost his base support. There's a lot of people who agree with him on trade and on immigration who aren't crazy, yeah. um, you know, outside of the mainstream. And so when we have high rhetoric about Trump, um, that you know, in my view, is mostly true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but nevertheless, right. I think it is, you know, actually a way to push people, you know, away. And so I think we need to be more thoughtful about what we say is the worst possible thing that could happen in the entire world. Yeah. Um, and what things are not great, but you know, we can we can talk about them in a more sober way mm-hmm. and, and not kind of alienate people. I mean, I see this with lots of things. I've done a lot of work on guns, for example. Mm-hmm. We've moved away from saying we're going to end gun violence and we talk about preventing gun violence or reducing gun violence because you would say, we're going to do this, we're going to pass background checks to end gun violence. And people say, you're not going to end gun violence with background checks, mm-hmm. right? But it's a kind of rhetorical yeah. right, tool. So I just think really thinking really hard about what you are actually saying mm-hmm. when you use these rhetorical devices and are you really saying something that people actually believe or are you actually pushing people away um, by not understanding the right tone uh, to be using. So that would be my, it's nice. not It's not a big conceptual idea, no, but, but it's a thing that makes me crazy. Is yeah. the, In fact, I have, you know, I'll write surveys and I'll have clients and others 
put rhetoric into mm-hmm. the messages right. and then I always try to take them out and say we just let's just say what it is we want to say we don't have to say and they're going to be the worst person ever because of this like let's just let them be the people who evaluate right. what this means and not impose our own rhetorical frame of what we think they think it should mean yeah that's great and I think people probably think that the more the more rhetorical language you put in the, the more persuasive you can be right but it's but it can turn people off and it can backfire or probably does more often than, than not I think so and I right. think we progressives are particularly prone to a little bit of hysteria yeah. in, our, in our rhetoric. Definitely. Well, I feel like we're, yeah, there's a lot of hysteria right now. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll, <laughs> hopefully we'll tone it down. Um, well, thanks, Anna, for joining us. This was a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing. We're very happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review there. Um, shoot us an email at podcast at hadaway.com if you have thoughts, suggestions, comments. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. If we really want workplace policies that work for everybody, I will say, though, it would, it would help if we had more women in Congress. It would help if we had more women in the corner suite.